Grace and mercy and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what are you like when no one is looking? John Wooden, the UCLA, famous UCLA bas- basketball coach, once said that the character of a man is what he does when no one is looking. I was watching a video of two college football coaches, and when no one was looking, somebody was looking because they videotaped it. And in one case, the college coach was on the sideline, upset about something, and one of the assistants came by to try to restrain him from going out on the field and getting a penalty, so he put his hand on his shoulder. And this coach, instead of restraining himself, he knocks the guy's hand away, and he says, don't you bleep and put your hand on me ever again. Then it showed a second video, another college coach who is coming out of the tunnel out to the opening of the game and he's on the sidelines and one of the ushers has to keep him from going out too soon because there's something going on he puts his hand on his shoulder and the coach just patiently steps back and smiles what do we look like when no one is looking or what do we look like when everyone is looking In the story of Jonah today, we're going to look at God and Jonah. And when no one else is looking or everyone's looking, what is the contrast between the character of God and the character of Jonah? First of all, Jonah knew God's character. Jonah knew what God was like. Jonah knew God was compassionate. God had sent Jonah to rescue the city of Nineveh, to bring a message of repentance, to call all these people, 120,000, to repent of their evil, their violence, their corruption, and turn away from it. And Jonah did just that. And we've heard the story now, how he tried to resist it, running the other way to Tarshish. He was then thrown in the sea because he was going to be the cause of the destruction of his whole ship. He was delivered by the fish, spit out on land, finally went to Nineveh, and he preached that in 40 days the city would be overthrown. The preaching worked, but not the way that Jonah thought it would. When the Lord saw that the people turned from their evil and repented, he relented from the disaster. He turned away. The Lord turned back from his own plans to destroy Nineveh, And it says then that this thing displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I ran away. That's why I went to Tarshish, because I knew that in the end, if these people turned, you were going to forgive them. Why? Because you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So I might as well die. 
Jonah understand, understood the character of God, and he did so because he knew the Bible. As a prophet, he knew the scriptures and the story of God that dated back way before Jonah ever came around. And what he does in his passage as he's praying to the Lord is he quotes the scriptures. In fact, the quote, that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. And it comes from the story of the Exodus. Back in Exodus chapter 32, Moses heads up onto the mountain. He's going up to meet with the Lord and make a covenant with the Lord. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is with the Lord. There's thunder and lightning, there's storms and a sound of a trumpet. And the people down below are scared. They figure Moses won't make it back. And so they create their own God. They mold a golden calf, begin worshiping it, And God hears what they're doing. God decides that he will wipe out his own people and sends that same kind of message of destruction that the Lord is going to bring an end to his own people, Israel, and start over. But Moses prays that the Lord would not do this. In fact, Moses offers his own life in their place. And the Lord hears his prayer and says that what Moses has prayed pleases him. And Moses says, I want a guarantee that you won't destroy us. And so the Lord says, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will show you that I am good and will proclaim my name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face. And so the Lord passed by Moses. He put him in a cave so that Moses could only catch a glimpse of his back. And he said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you have Jonah quoting the scriptures as it happens in the Psalms, it happens with David. They're quoting the character of God. <coughs> the story of the golden calf is emphasizing the Lord's loyalty to his covenant. God had made a covenant with the people of Israel, and it's emphasizing that he is not going to go back on his promises, that his promises are rooted in his gracious heart. And so it's right for Moses to expect the Lord to keep his word, forgive his people, and save them. The shocking news in Jonah's story is that the same statement applies not to Israel and not to this nation that God had a covenant with, but his covenant love extended outside of Israel to Gentiles, to not just any Gentile, but the Assyrians, the Assyrians who had a long history of warmongering and violence and corruption, of evil that we could barely stand to hear about today, despite all the evil we might know of in the world. 
It is truly shocking, and yet God is often shocking. The character of God is compassionate. It's the character that we see revealed most clearly in Jesus. Jesus, who would go to the people who were most lost, who had the longest laundry list of sins, and even to Gentiles. In the New Testament, it describes this sense of Jesus' inner being. It uses a very descriptive word in Greek, which refers to Jesus' gut feelings. That he feels for these people so that after teaching all day, healing, casting out demons, it says he went through all the cities and villages teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word there in the text that says Jesus had compassion meant he was moved in his guts. He felt it. He felt the pain of people who were lost. So first and foremost, God's character is defined by his compassion. But such compassion does not come without a price. The compassion of God is not free. Rather, such compassion is costly, and that's the place where Jonah stumbles. Jonah is not willing or interested in bearing the cost of compassion. It's so costly to have compassion on this people, the Assyrians. It's so costly to Jonah that the feeling of being able to forgive or as Jonah would see it, letting these people off the hook is so bad to him that he would rather die than see this happen. His life has lost all purpose, all meaning. The things that he had held on to about God, about truth, about justice that he thought in his head are now have been destroyed by God's willingness to have compassion on an evil people. Before we point the finger at Jonah, we have to remember what Nineveh was really like and what it would mean to us in our day. Nineveh was a terrorist state. Imagine a foreign people who were notorious for terrorism, doing all kinds of atrocity in the name of their own religion, their own God, Allah. And they instead are now afflicting us. They've invaded your homeland. They've invaded your city. They've ruined your lives and your livelihood. Would you be willing to have compassion on them? Or maybe it's something closer to home. Not somebody far away, but a family member or a friend who's hurt you, who's done you wrong who's lied to you or betrayed you, would you be willing to have compassion on that person? Why is forgiveness so hard? The word that God uses 
for compassion. It pops up in verse 10. He says that Jonah pitied the plant which, for which he did not labor or make grow. And then he says, should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? The word for compassion there indicates an intimacy that's required to have compassion because you can't have compassion without intimacy. You can't be at a distance from these problems, from these people. You can't just look at them in a newspaper article and have compassion on them. Not truly the way it's being described. Instead, it requires attachment, an intimate attachment. Now, most of our relationships in this world, especially our compassionate ones, do involve attachment, but they're usually not voluntary. So your attachment to your kids is not a voluntary compassion. It's, it's ingrained in you. It's wired into you as your biological family. But God's love is shown in his willingness to attach himself voluntarily to people outside his family. That's a risky business. Attachments are risky, which is why narcissists do not like attachment. Narcissists like Jonah don't want to be that close to somebody, that intimate, because there's such a risk to it. There's such a risk that you're going to get hurt if you get too close to somebody or if you let this person know where you're vulnerable. They're going to take advantage of that. And so narcissists, for example, they're only going to be interested in themselves. They'll attach themselves to some things that are distant or inanimate like a plant and say, well, I care about this plant. Why? Because it's giving me shade. And so we find our heart is turning back inward to ourselves to only attach to things that help us. The risk of God's story is that he attaches himself intimately to people. And Jonah doesn't like that. He says, what about their past? What about their future? In some ways, he's on the right track. Nineveh stops doing the evil that they're doing here, but what are they like a hundred years from now? How long will that repentance last? Well, we know it doesn't last very long. In fact, within a hundred years of this repentance, you have the prophet Nahum, the next prophet, sent to the same people. And this is what he says to them. He says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip... The rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and bounding chariots, the flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies, without end, they stumble over the bodies. And he says, Behold, I am against you, Nineveh, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the swords shall devour your young lions. 
I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. That's the risk of forgiveness, because in our minds, one of the reasons forgiveness is so hard is because you think, well, what if this person or this people or this nation should go back to their evil ways? Then is it just a waste? Then I've spent all this effort, all this intimacy, this hurt, and it's just going to happen all over again. What is the amazing thing about God is that he's willing to take the risk, knowing that it might turn out this way. It's the mystery of the gospel that none of us has by our nature in our own abilities or hearts. The mystery of the gospel is God's love anyway. He's willing to be taken advantage of. The story of Jesus is not that he died for his friends, It's not that he died for his family. It's not that he died for people that were somehow going to help him in the end, but that he died for enemies, which is what it says in Romans chapter 5. It says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And that attachment that Jesus gives, not just to his friends or family, but to his enemies, is the attachment he has for you. It's how much he loves you. And despite our own sins, our own struggles, our bad attitudes, even with Jonah, Look at how patient God is with Jonah. Even when Jonah says, Lord, it's, your decision is so bad, I just want to die. God simply responds gently with a question. Is that right, Jonah, for you to be angry? And then Jonah repeats it all over again about the plant, and God just says it again. Is it right for you to be angry? He doesn't say, you idiot. He doesn't say, wake up. Why don't you listen? And so he asks us the same question. Is it right for us to be angry? It's a question that dates back all the way to the story of Cain, where Cain is not happy that the Lord was gracious to Abel. And he had this complexion of depression and inwardness that the Lord said, Why are you frowning? If you do what's right, will you not also be accepted? And instead of repenting and doing what's right, Cain only furthered his heart and his hardness. And God said, you better be careful because sin is waiting for you. It's like a crouching lion and it wants to rule your heart and ruin you if you keep festering on these thoughts. And that's what ruined Cain. And the same thing is coming up in Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? To truly know the heart of God requires intimacy with him, which means we have to risk ourselves. And part of that risk is trusting God's justice, 
trusting the complexity that is beyond our understanding of how God can be endlessly loving on the one hand and yet perfectly just on the other hand. That's the trouble we have. Because we say if you're endlessly loving, then how could you also be perfectly just? Because you're going to love these people into something that's not fair or right. Letting them off the hook. And if you're perfectly just toward these people, then you can't be endlessly loving because you have to uphold what's right in every circumstance. The only way that we can put these two things together is in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, it's, it's a complexity that exists in God, but we are just lost. It's in Jesus that these are both put together. So that when we approach God's compassion and his justice, it's not meant to be something that we negotiate. So thirdly, the complexity of God's compassion can't be negotiated. It's meant to be interceded. Jonah is reflecting on this complexity and he's, he's confused. His heart is struggling so much with God's justice that he just wants to die and he's filled with resentment. Resentment is self-destructive. It will indeed lead you to a place where you would rather die than live. He says it several times. Please take my life. Please take my life. One of the things that Jonah's having trouble with is he keeps trying to negotiate God's justice instead of trusting it. He keeps trying to work with God. Just, just fudge a little here, move a little here. Can you come my way on this? I mean, surely not all 120,000 deserve to be saved. Maybe there's a couple that didn't do quite as bad a things as the rest, but he's trying to negotiate with God. And that's where we get bitter. We get bitter when we start negotiating and comparing ourselves to other people, comparing our sins to other people's sins. There's a story that C.S. Lewis tells in one of his books. It's called The Four Loves. And one of the loves he brings out is the love of country, national pride and patriotism. And he talks about it at a time when his country was going through World War II. So he's writing in a context where you're looking at another nation, Germany, a lot like Nineveh, led by a narcissist, filled with violence and evil against the innocent and oppressed. And he's thinking about our attitude toward these other nations, and he talks with one of his fellow Englishmen. He's talking with his fellow British compatriot, and his friend says, well, surely we're not as bad as Germany. And Lewis says, well, every country likes to think its people are the fairest and the bravest, even Germany. And the man responds, yes, but in England, it's true. The sad part is that he was serious. But Lewis is looking at this and saying, no, that's not how your love of country works. Surely there's a place for patriotism. 
for truth and righteousness and justice and supporting your own nation. But remember that every people of every race, no matter their past, are people that God wants to save. Means we have to be willing to risk our own rightness. It means God forces us out of the comfort of our own shade tree. Yeah, it's comfortable on that hill outside the city with your shaded plant over your head so you're not bearing the heat of the day. But guess what? There's no shade on Nineveh. Jonah was comfortable there. It says he rejoiced exceedingly, not just that he was happy, but he was filled with exceeding joy that that plant grew up and he could sit there and hopefully maybe God would change his mind and and destroy the city. But he comes to this impasse when God robs him of the plant. Because God wants him to remember this. That the character of his compassion, the character of his justice, the character of God is meant to lead us to intercession, not negotiation. It should lead us to intercede for Nineveh. And that means the risk of that day-long journey into the heart of the city. It means you have to go into the city where these people are where their lives are, where their circumstances are. You have to get to know them. And it means don't stop after preaching the word once. One of the things that's unspoken here that I have a suspicion is also behind the scenes that God is teaching us is, yes, the city repented. Yes, they turned and they stopped their evil. But what good was there to put in its place? What did they know about God? What did they know about the gospel? Perhaps it was just as much Jonah's job to stay in the city as it was to preach the word. To stay there and continue to teach them. So it wouldn't just be a momentary revival, but it would be an enduring faith that the city could keep and hold on to as they learned about the Lord and the scriptures. So for each of us, it's not just a one-time speaking of the word, but an ongoing ministry to reach people. Perhaps leaving them to their own devices then out on the hill is one of the reasons why so soon they turned back and went back to their evil ways within a hundred years. Because there was no prophet, there was no word. Go to Nineveh. Get out of the comfort of your own shade tree. Remember the discomfort that Jesus was willing to bear. Remember that he's interceding always for you. And the story of the scriptures is filled with these stories of intercession. As Moses prays for the people of Israel when they're practicing idolatry and God's going to destroy them. And he's willing to lay down his life. So God could save Israel. That's the story of God's compassion. Jesus sent his disciples from city to city, saying to them, if they welcome you, stay there. Keep on teaching them. And as you do, the gospel raises up a new shade tree over new cities and new places and new lives where people 
can find God's compassionate love. Whether we're looking or not, in the end, whether we're taking a video of someone behind the scenes, seeing what God is doing, whether we are aware or not, God is always good, his compassion is winning out, and his justice will be perfect on the last day. Amen.